1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm Matthew of castingacross.com, where I explore the quarry and culture of fly fishing. We had a pre-Halloween snow in New England, where I live, north of Boston. And that is a common thing around here, and a common thing kind of across the parallel that uh, I I live at in in the United States, where I've lived in uh, Chicago, and we've had pre-Halloween snows. I have family out in Colorado, and they had a lot of snow early in October of this year. And uh, that's something that's been happening for decades, been something that happened for centuries. So this isn't some new novel uh, climate change-related thing. It's just uh, the reality of late fall and uh, early winter. But we're still in a really great time for fly fishing. I mean, if you're fishing for spring spawning fish, and so you're not messing with trout that are spawning in the fall, there's some awesome fly fishing opportunities. I think fish are designed, like most other critters, to realize that things are starting to get a little bit different. And although the air temperature is cold, cold enough to bring about snow, and you're going to have some really, really chilly days, the water temperatures really haven't dropped to the point where the fish are going to go very, very, very sluggish. But the reality is, is that fish are going to eat year round. You're just going to have to try different things. Not necessarily harder. The hard thing is switching your approach. It's not necessarily harder fishing. Now, are there going to be prolific hatches? Are there going to be fish that are feeding very aggressively? Not necessarily, but there's still a lot of great fishing that can be had once winter weather sets in. So I've talked about this a few times before, and uh, actually one of my very first podcasts when I started the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast, talk about kind of like getting your head around fly fishing in the winter, because it really is, like I mentioned before, uh, largely a mental game. If you go out in December trying to fish like it's June, you're going to be very, very discouraged, and you're going to be very confused as to why there aren't fish that are hopping at your humpy uh, left, right, and center. But if you change your approach, then you can find a lot of success. I'll touch on some more particulars in this podcast, but you can go back to listen to that one. I think it's probably one of the first five. And then I think last winter I talked about dressing for winter fishing. And that's a a great episode also because I've had that question a lot. And when I used to sell fly fishing gear, uh, that was one of the questions I got most frequently. How can I be the warmest with the least amount of clothing on because no one likes to feel like a, um, the, the stave puff marshmallow man or a, a sumo suit when they're out there fly fishing. 
It's not comfortable under normal circumstances. It's definitely not comfortable in waders, and it is absolutely terrible if you build up uh, a real sweat walking in all of those layers to the water, and then you get in that cold water, and you get very cold very quickly. So that's a good podcast episode to serve as an adjunct to what I'm talking about today. But today I want to talk about a couple of things that I would do when fishing in the wintertime. Now, you might have the benefit of fishing a spring creek or fishing some sort of water that has a warm influence in it. And these will absolutely work in those situations. I think every fish kind of responds similarly, even if they go through a wider temperature swing in the waters that they inhabit. And of course, I I think I want to throw out there also, you have to consider the ethical implications of your fishing. First and foremost, check the local and state regulations. And then secondly, if you are fishing for these fish in extremely cold weather, uh, then exposing them to the air for any prolonged period of time can be uh, very, very dangerous to them. But as long as there's flowing water and you you fish for them safely, then you're okay. I mean, think about how many fish are caught and released in the ice and, and do just fine. So anyway, some things that you can do as you get out there. So the first thing that I find that you need to do when you are coming to a new water that you haven't fished in the wintertime or if you are new to fishing in winter weather and winter temperatures, is to find trout, right? You got to know where they are. They're not going to be in the same places. They're not going to be inches below the surface under normal circumstances. They're usually not going to be hanging out in slack water, which is not getting as much current and it's probably a lot colder than the moving water. So there's exceptions to all of those, you know, situations and circumstances, and that's just the nature of fly fishing. But you're going to try to find those fish. And so my first go-to, if I'm not seeing fish feeding, if I haven't spotted them uh, you know, using my polarized sunglasses, is to dead drift a streamer as a prospecting tool. I dead drift a streamer as a prospecting tool. So fish are very, very simple organisms. They want to eat, they want to survive, and they want to pass on their genes to the next generation. That's really all they're looking to do. And so when it comes to that eating quotient of their their living, then they are running a very complex formula in their head that they've been designed to do without, you know, needing a calculator or anything like that of is this meal worth my energy? And so in ex- temperature extremes, extremely warm water and weather, extremely cold water and weather, then having to chase something down that is small is not worth their time. Now, again, there's always exceptions if they're particularly hungry, if they haven't eaten, or if the mood just strikes them, because fish, you know, they have moods, then they'll go after it. But generally speaking, you want to provide them with a sizable meal that's easy enough to get. So everyone loves chucking big, long streamers and ripping them through the water really fast. Well, that does elicit a lot of strikes during the normal part of the season on most waters. But using a small streamer and dead drifting it, making it act like a fish that has succumbed to the elements, uh, uh, some sort of bait fish or other sort of aquatic life that is just tumbling along dead. It can be as simple as a woolly bugger. It does not need to be some complicated, uh, multi-segmented articulated fly. Woolly bugger will do fine. Muddler minnow will do fine. A really good fly is shanks white minnow. You're looking for something that's meaty 
and something that has marabou or another fiber that is going to pulsate and move around in the water without you having to pull it through the water. So marabou is fantastic and then you know like a woolly bugger you've got the, the marabou in the back, the hackle on the, the body and it's going to move on its own and that's what makes that so enticing to fish. And so you're going to fish this in, in smaller patterns. I mean, if, it, if the fish are really, really finicky and you suspect that they're smaller, you can fish these down to like a size 12 or 14. But from normal circumstances, you can fish them in like a 6, 8, or 10. And you're going to cast them against rocks uh, that are in the middle of the water. You're going to cast them through deeper holes. You're going to cast them into undercut banks, again, where there's current, not on the side of the stream that might be more slack water, but you're going to cast into the undercut banks where there's current, drifted under roots. All those places that you would anticipate big fish to be holding during the, the normal part of the season, these are now the real estate that almost all the fish are going to be holding because they're going to be laying low, trying to find some sort of thermal refuge, and putting these in their faces is a great way to figure out where the fish are hiding. Are they orienting more towards those undercut banks where they might be getting a little bit more warmth? Or are they going down to the bottom of pools where there may be a spring seep or something like that? Or they just have, again, that thermal refuge at the bottom of the pool. But using a pattern like this is nice for a few reasons. One, it's going to offer a little bit of resistance in the water. So you're going to be able to feel when that fish takes or even when when it, it ticks and, and it hits it and maybe just is messing around with it you're going to be able to notice when that fish is going to hit that fly which is always helpful when you're trying to locate trout so using a streamer that already has resistance and uh, in, in the water you're going to notice a lot easier that there's a change rather than something that is really really light and microscopic in your having to detect a very, very subtle bite. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that a big meaty streamer is going to be on the right side of that energy versus caloric consumption equation. So that's exactly what you're looking for. They're not having to chase it down if you put it within a few foot radius of their head or their feeding line, but it's going to provide them with the kind of incentive to move a little bit to go ahead and take it. But you know, again, there's always exceptions, but you're not going to be eating those violent strikes. A lot of them are going to just take it as subtly as they would a nymph. And this is a great technique to use year-round, honestly, but it is my preferred prospecting method if I'm hitting a new stream or I've not fished this particular stream before in the wintertime because it is a great way to at least get some fish to move. And again, as a prospecting tool, you don't have to stay committed to it. Once you realize, all right, there are fish in the bottom of these these pools, there are fish in this run, there are fish in, under the banks, then what do you do? You say, okay, I'm not getting a lot of takes, but I am getting some swipes. I am seeing them turn their heads. Then you say, okay, well, maybe this is a little bit too aggressive for them. Uh, they, they don't want to go after these. Or it's a, you know, they're smaller fish. They're 10, 12, 14-inch fish. They're not going to be chasing down these big streamers. So either you downsize the streamer that you're fishing or you switch over to a nymph rig and you're able to fish a nymph, um, and it could be even a meaty nymph. I mean, I, that, that's honestly what I would do as you're trying to diagnose what's happening. Are they, are they swiping at this fly, coming out to this fly, giving it a look because it is large or because it is something that's swimming by, or is it because they 
are just curious. And so if you go from a streamer that's got a lot of action to maybe like a big stonefly nymph, then you are just eliminating one variable. And if they're still coming after it but backing off because maybe they just are, are skeeved out by a big fly, now you know to drop down to just a hare's ear or a pheasant tail or even some sort of midge pattern. But that way you can kind of scale it down. But those, those streamers are great tools for being able to get fish to at least move on your fly. So use a streamer as a prospecting tool by dead drifting it through likely spots. The second thing, which is you can actually do this uh, with with uh, the technique I just talked about, is to use a nymphing rod. All right, but you don't have to get fancy with your nymphing. So the takes are going to be subtle, generally speaking, in the winter time, because fish are waiting for things to come across their path and they're not going to be acting as aggressively. Again, and I say this this only to cover my rear end, but you know, there's always exceptions to all these things. But I find that having a tighter connection to my fly is much more valuable in situations where the water is very cold and the fish aren't going to be acting as aggressively. So if I have a couple more feet of fly rod, then that allows me to maintain a better connection with my rod tip my line, my leader, my tippet, and my fly. So a nymphing rod will come in handy here. Now, I think we've kind of gotten past this, but I still see this sentiment online and hear this sentiment from people that is, you know, I, I'm not going to be a Euro nympher. I'm not going to come up with some complicated rig and some weird line that isn't really fly line and not casting. And, and so I, one of these rods is not for me. I don't want an 11 foot three weight. And I get that. And honestly, that's not my preferred way of nymphing either. But I do like a few more feet of reach, and I'm able to maintain that tighter connection with my fly. And that's true year-round. But in the wintertime, I found it to be very, very valuable as I have sought out where fish are to be able to control where that fly is in the water column and to maintain a very, very tight connection with that fly. And so you don't have to get fancy with your nymph rig, but by using a longer, lighter fly rod that's designed for nymphing, you're able to kind of continue down that prospecting path, but you're able to detect those strikes much, much better than even if you're using an indicator rig. Uh, indicators are great, but indicators, I th would say that they, they suffer the most with very subtle takes on water that has any sort of movement or chop on it. And indicators aren't foolproof. No matter what kind of indicator you use, you're going to be missing fish just because there is something in between you and that fly. And there's going to be strikes you're not able to detect. And the more subtle the take, the less likely that you are to detect it. And I see fish do this in all sorts of situations. One of the great things about fishing crystal clear water, uh, spring creeks and places where you can kind of be on top of the fish, is you can watch the different ways they take flies. Some of them open their mouths up wide. Others, they act like my two-year-old when he's trying some new food. They open their mouth just enough so it goes in there, and as soon as it hits their lips, some fish don't have lips, but whatever. As soon as it hits it, they're just, they're done. They, they move their head and they, they yuck, spit it out. So, realize that if that happens and you can see it happen and you can't set the hook because it happens so quickly, how often is that maybe happening four feet under your indicator with your indicator 20 feet away from you? And what are the odds that you're going to catch that fish? You know what? We probably catch those fish, but it's it's when we are pulling back to our false cast and it just so happens to be at that precise moment. I I would love to know how many 
fish take our nymphs when they're on indicator rigs 20 30 feet away from us that we have we have no clue i bet i bet we all are just really killing it we just never know so anyway use a nymphing rod uh, but don't get fancy but just use it again as a, a nice direct line between you and your fly and get rid of the indicator. Now, nothing wrong with indicators. You can use them, but this is just one technique that I find that you're able to also prospect for fish in, in this manner. And uh, speaking of nymphing rods, I'll talk about uh, my recommendation for a nymphing rod if you don't have one at the end of this podcast. So stick around. You should stick around. I talk about good stuff at the end. All right. Third thing, fish the sun, but watch out for the sun. Fish the sun, but watch out for the sun. I think I've talked about this before in another context, but I didn't feel like going back through 100 plus episodes of the podcast. But fishing the sun is a very, very important thing to do when the weather gets colder, especially once the water gets colder. Because if you're fishing any body of water, the sun is going to not just warm up the water, but it's going to have a very, very significant impact, relatively speaking, on the temperature of that water as it warms up the stream bed. This is one of the reasons why conservation organizations uh, protect riparian streamside growth of, of shrubs and canopy because when that sun comes up in the middle of the summertime, it will bake the dark or even the light stream bottoms of these creeks and that will increase the temperature significantly, causing real big problems for cold water species. But we can use that to our benefit in the wintertime because the stream bed will warm up enough and the fish are going to gravitate to those spots. And so see where the sun is shining on the shallower water. So it's not going to have as much of an impact on those deep green, deep blue pools where you can't see the bottom. But if there are maybe riffles on the front end or the back end of a pool like that, and the, as the sun comes up and is been out for a few hours you know you're thinking like early afternoon or something like that those are the spots where fish might not be in that place in the morning but as that water warms up or even as there's a little bit of radiant heat coming off of those rocks on the stream bottom they're going to move up and out of those pools or even out from undercut banks where they're in the shadows where they were getting some sort of refuge but now they're taking the advantage of the warmer water kickstarts their metabolism just a teeny tiny bit and they're going to be uh, more evident and you know what that also does is that potentially gets the bugs moving and so it's the whole you know life cycle of everything going on in that ecosystem gets kickstarted for a few hours even in the shortest days by the sunshine it's really cool to see uh, even just a few bugs coming off and fish keying on those so target those spots shallower water where the sun hits so that is fish the sun but the other part of that is watch out for the sun because you no longer have the benefit of canopy and streamside vegetation around you in the wintertime. Now, could you be fishing someplace where there's wall, like rock walls or just really, really high banks or lots of pine trees? Yes. But, you know, generally speaking, wintertime, things fall off the trees. Leaves are not there. There's not as much underbrush. And so you are going to be casting a shadow a lot more and you're going to be throwing a silhouette a lot more. We all know about shadows. Shadows are bad. Fish don't like shadows. Shadows could be anything awful and dangerous to them. So never cast a shadow over a spot you're trying to fish. And then also, silhouettes. 
We don't think about silhouettes as much, but if that cone of vision that a fish has, which uh, this is not great radio, but definitely Google it, a fish's cone of vision, but they can see in front of themselves, but then up, but then because the refraction of the water, they can see at a wider angle than you can probably expect them to see. So it's really important to kind of have this in mind as you approach fish. How did I spook that? I'm so far away. I'm so low. Well, the water actually magnifies and uh, and opens up that fish's vision, and that is variable depending on how deep that fish is um, under the water. So that's definitely something to, to Google and check out. Not great for describing on a podcast, but uh, there's plenty of resources. I, I guarantee you uh, something like Orvis has in their learning center some pictures and diagrams of, of how a fish's cone of vision works. But there's you know classic books back from the, the 50s and 60s that have some uh, great information on this and, and current you know, contemporary books have it also. But don't throw a silhouette because you don't have that benefit of streamside vegetation behind you to mask your silhouette as much as you would in the spring, summer, and fall. So dead drift to streamer as a prospecting tool. Use a nymphing rod just to fish. Don't get too fancy with it if you don't want to. Fish the sun slash watch out for the sun. The last bit of advice for fishing in winter and cold weather is your guides. Now, we all know that guides ice up, and it is one of the more frustrating things when that happens and because you, you can't uh, strip line uh, to cast. Uh, when you are maybe even reeling it in, it is going to get stuck and cause problems. And, of course, ice is very, very sharp at a, at a kind of a microscopic level. I mean, ice can be sharp at a macro level, but definitely at a microscopic level, and that's not good for your expensive fly line because you're fishing expensive fly line, right? You better be fishing expensive fly line. It's a very, very good investment. So, but you don't want it to get gashed up by ice, and you definitely don't want to pop that ice off of your guides. That is a great way to snap your little snake guides. It's a great way to even just uh, to damage already compromised epoxy now that it's cold enough that ice is forming on it by popping that ice through that guide. So what do you do? Well, if you don't have anything that I'm going to mention here in a second as far as prevention, then you can do one of two things. The first is just hold that guide in your hand. Allow it to melt. Uh, sometimes it's just the tip top be, because of how much water your your line is carrying, how long of casts you're, you're, you're making. If you aren't maybe fishing a streamer or stripping something in, you're just getting a little bit of motion with a little bit of wet line through your tip top. So just hold it in your hand, allow it to melt, and you're good to go. But more likely you have wet line moving through your guides frequently and you're going to have ice building up on all of those guides. If it is only happening intermittently because the temperature is only causing it intermittently, then dip your whole rod underwater and then quickly make some false casts. You say, well, it's just going to reform. Well, it, it breaks up that ice. It melts away because the water is warmer than the air. So it will give you temporary relief. There's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with your rod getting wet and it's meant to get wet. What would I use as a preventative measure? Well, what I think works the best is to get some spray silicone and spray it on a rag. Make sure it's just the most basic stuff, no extra chemicals, and uh, just put it in a little rag and then hit your guides with it. Just a little bit will go a very long way. In a pinch, chapstick works, but 
I don't think it scares the fish away. I don't think it mess. It, it certainly doesn't mess up your fly line. That's if you put it on your lips, you can put it on your fly line. Uh, but chapstick is a great backup option to have, and that's something to, to keep in your, your vest or your sling pack in case you do get in a difficult situation where things are freezing up. But for uh, optimum adhering, both for using a silicone spray, which again, I wouldn't spray it on the rod itself. I'd spray it in a rag and just rub it on each snake guide and the tip top. Make sure your guides and your rod are dry and that's going to get the best use out of any of those products there's a lot of other options that people use i know that people use fly line dressing and uh it's because some of those have silicone in them and then they definitely feel like they're not damaging their rod their guides or their line because they're using something that's designed to be used in that situation try out different things as long as it's as long as you're not popping that ice out of your guides then you will be good so I'll probably do another one of these sometime in the next few weeks, uh, another winter fly fishing tips technique kind of uh, episode. Uh, but again, a lot of it is just slowing down and being very deliberate about your fishing if this is not something you've been doing or if you're going to a new stream. This week on Casting Across, two articles. The first one is called Even After Tomorrow, Trout Will Still Rise. Even After Tomorrow, Trout Will Still Rise. So this is being recorded the day after the election, which is at the moment an ongoing process. Uh, Say what you will, uh, vote who you want to vote for, but uh, in my humble opinion, this is a bad look for our country uh, that uh, we can't get this figured out much, much quicker, that we didn't anticipate that this was going to happen. Anyway, this is not why you have tuned in. Um, I want people's voices, votes to be uh, counted and voices to be heard. I just think that we should have figured out a way to do it much, much quicker. That's my nonpartisan take. But this article is just a reminder that there's fish rising today. There'll be fish rising tomorrow. And that is a microcosm of how normal life will be on a day-by-day basis. Now, you could say, you know, but what about the situation? What about these people? What about this conservation issue? What about this demographic? Okay, I get it. But if you go fishing, if you're able to get away, which we all get away from time to time, if you're listening to this, you're interested in this, then you get away, there's going to be a fish rising, and you're going to be able to have a break. So just remember that and keep some perspective, and for not just fishing, but probably bigger things. Then my Wednesday article is called Three Easy Steps for Fly Rod Care. I like my fly rods. I want them to function. So some of these things are very, very common sense with a little bit of a twist. Uh, Some places that you don't necessarily think to clean and some ways that you don't necessarily consider looking at your rods before you put them away for the winter. Unless, of course, you're fishing all winter long. But then you should still have some time where you go to clean them. This week's recommendation on the podcast are the 23PS Nymph Rods from Risen Fly Fishing. If you go to risenfly.com, you will go to their fly rod page, and you'll see the 23PS Nymph Rods. So I'd used a couple of Nymph Rods before, and I thought, oh, this might be something I want to add to my arsenal of rods. But all the ones that I tried were ones guides had or other people I was fishing with had, and they were all real, real high-end nymphing rods. I mean, six, seven, dollars $800 rods. I don't know if I want to invest that much. So I actually was sent the 23PS Nymph rod to demo before it was released, and I loved it, and I decided, you know, I want this rod because it comes in at $299. There is an 11-foot 3-weight, a 10-foot 2-weight, and a 10-foot 3-weight. They're all four-piece. They all have a fighting butt, and they're great rods. They perform as well as some of those high-end rods that I had fished with. But if you are interested in getting into the Nymph 
rod game if you want to fish this way in the winter in the summer year round whatever if you want to use it just as a weighted tight line or if you want to get into a more complicated nymphing rig setup then i would definitely recommend checking out the 23 ps nymph rod awesome components awesome blank great action wonderful sensitivity i absolutely love it for 2.99 it can't be beat so risenfly.com I will put a link to the 23PS Nymph Rods on the show notes for this page of Casting Across. Thanks for listening to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. Please subscribe in your favorite podcast app and rate the podcast on iTunes. Then head over to castingacross.com where you'll find more info on this podcast and three posts a week on the people, places, and things that go into the pursuit of fish. that has the stories to back it a life to be proud of it's a winchester life yeah baby six eight western i'll be over there baby right there tune in every tuesday at 7 p.m eastern on waypoint tv i'm will cooper host of hunt stands make your mark podcast if you haven't already download the free waypoint tv app to listen to our podcast and watch the original films from hunt stand presents anywhere anytime and on any device